turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. The Lord led me uh, to speak to you the next few Sundays, weeks, whatever the case may be. We're going to be talking from the book of Romans. You know, it's a very uh, famous book, probably uh, in the top two of most popular books in the Bible. I would say John and the book of Romans run neck and neck uh, for popularity, at least in my estimation. I love both of those books. I certainly love all of the books of the Bible, but Romans is a unique book because in that we find all of the information we need to become a Christian and to live the Christian life. We find a lot of doctrine in the book of Romans. We find a lot of application of that doctrine in the book of Romans. In fact, the first 11 chapters are doctrine. If you want to know what it's Christianity is about, then you open up the book of Romans and you read the first 11 chapters, you will find out what Christianity is about. If you want to learn how to live Christianity, then you start in verse uh, chapter 12 and you finish the book in uh, the book of Romans and you will find life application of those truths. Why is that important? To believe something is the object of all humans. To, to follow something, to have a goal, to to uh, have a direction to follow or to aim for. And so the doctrine of the Bible teaches us about Christianity. And it's important then that as I know these things about Christianity, that my life mirrors that belief. So let me ask you a question this morning. Does your life mirror what you say you believe? Or do you, like most people in the world, fight hypocrisy? You say you believe one thing, but your life lives another way. Your goals are other goals. Your dreams are other dreams. You say you believe the Bible. You say you believe the Lord Jesus. You want to follow Him, but do you fight that desire to live in the world and follow the world? Doctrine and application of doctrine must go together in every believer. You must line up your life with what you say that you believe. If you're not, then Jesus used the term hypocrite, according to the Pharisees. I would never call any of you a hypocrite to your face. I will let the Lord do that, okay? And you know what I mean. I don't know your life outside of these walls necessarily. Some of you I do, but some of you I don't. And so I want you to understand the Lord knows and he wants to teach us from his word this morning about what it is to become a Christian. The two themes of the Bible, the doctrine and the life application, are concentric circles getting smaller and smaller till we come to the main purpose of the book of Romans, and that's the bullseye. And the bullseye is this, Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul was teaching. That's what Paul wanted everybody to know. That's what Paul began the book with, and that's what we'll talk about this morning uh, a little bit in the introduction of the book. The first 17 verses are considered the whole, uh, or the so-called introduction of the book of Romans. We're not going to cover all 17 of those. We're going to get to about verse 6 or 7 this morning. Tonight, at 6 o'clock, we're going to continue on maybe to verse 17. But I want you to understand that the book of Romans becomes so familiar with us because it is such a popular book that we sometimes as Christian people 
reading through it, we miss the power and the life-transforming power that is in these words. Like I said, everything I would want to know about Christianity, I find in the book of Romans. Paul wrote this book about 30 years after the crucifixion. Paul wrote this book when he was in the city of Corinth, which was, at that time, a major trade city in the Roman Empire, and it was probably the most immoral city in the world at that time. And Paul was there establishing churches, and he wrote this book to the Roman Christians. He'd never been to Rome as of yet. Now, he would end up going there, but he sent on ahead this letter to the Romans to show them about Christianity and to help them understand what it would mean to be a Christian and how to live that life. This book was so life-transforming that Augustine, many of you Bible students have heard of that name, Augustine, he read the book of Romans, and it changed his life, and he became a great theologian. Many of you have heard of Martin Luther, right? He was the reformist who broke away from the Catholic Church and, and put his thesis on the door of the church, stating that he had read the book of Romans and that the church was in error and that he was going off in another direction, a direction of faith. Amen? Martin Luther, life changed because of the book of Romans. Also, many of you have heard of the author named John Bunyan who wrote the book called Pilgrim's Progress, a great book for you to read if you're a Christian. He was in jail and a Bible was given to him or the book of Romans and he read that book of Romans and it changed his life and he started down that journey and ended up writing the Pilgrim's Progress. More contemporary, John Wesley one of the founders of the Methodist Church, he was reading the book of Romans and it changed his view in life about the Lord Jesus Christ and Christianity. And he branched out to become a great traveling evangelist and started a great awakening in Europe that spread to America. Why? Because John Wesley read the book of Romans. That's simple. That's simple. You, you are so familiar with it today that it doesn't affect you like that. I hope that you can stop for a minute with me and let's dig in as we go through the book of Romans and we will discover some truths that might even change your life as well. So to begin that, let's stand together one more time and begin in verse 1 of chapter 1. You follow as I read. The Bible says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart, for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, bless your word this morning in our hearts and help us, Lord, to see uh, the value of knowing Christianity and then living it out in the days and weeks ahead. I pray you speak to us today. Help us respond correctly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. You know, Paul uh, begins with this thought, Jesus is the Lord. And he describes Jesus in a little detail there in in the first uh, few verses that we read. Jesus is Lord has to go before all of the other doctrines that you learn about in the book of Romans. For instance, justification by faith. We learn that in the book of Romans. But if Jesus is not Lord, then justification by faith means nothing. Amen. Jesus has to be the central figure. Jesus is Lord. He must be preeminent. Also a doctrine we learn is sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Well, without Jesus as Lord, you're not going to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So all of the doctrines and teachings narrow down, as I said, to the bullseye that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Now, we don't follow a philosophy as Christian people. We don't even follow a philosopher. We don't follow a program. We follow a Savior. We follow a person. We follow the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He must be central in all of my life. He must be central in all of my thinking, in all of my working, in all of my whereabouts, of all the things I do, Jesus Christ, as a follower of Him, must be central. I really don't want to make a life decision without consulting the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? If I do, I will find that I get haywire. I get off track. I get out of sorts. I must keep Jesus Christ central in my life. I must follow His leadership. Now, for you and I as Christians, we, we know that, right? We, we understand that, we, we can accept that, and we, we want to practice that. But for somebody who's not a Christian, for somebody who doesn't follow the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps someone in your life that you're trying to witness to, what evidence do you have that Jesus is credible? Credible to the point of following. Credible to the point of making Him central in your life. What evidence does a lost man outside of these walls have that he can place his faith and trust in this person called Jesus Christ? Well, Paul gives us some evidence here in the scriptures. We know that he alone can solve the human dilemma. The human dilemma is not finances. The human dilemma is not retirement accounts. The human dilemma is not abortion, pro or con. The human dilemma is sin. The human problem is sin. Man is a sinner. Who can come and solve man's problem? Who can come and take care of that sin for us? You and I know who that is. Jesus Christ and Him alone can take care of the problem of men. There have been religious voices throughout the ages that say they can solve the problem of man, right? We have Muhammad said he can solve the problem of mankind. We have Buddha said he could solve, and Confucius, he could solve the problems of mankind. 
And on and on we see men, women throughout history saying they are the one that can solve the human dilemma. But guess what? None have done it except one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gave his life to pay for our sin debt. He solved the issue of the human dilemma of sin in man. He apart and alone stands separate from all other voices that have ever spoken about religion. Now, how do I know? How can I say to someone? How can I prove to someone that he is credible? I'll show you in the text this morning. Jesus was predicted long before he appeared. Look in verse 1 and 2. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. No other religious figure has ever been predicted. No other religious man, institution, founder of a religion was ever prophesied would come. None except one, Jesus Christ. Do you remember when he was crucified and resurrected and two of the disciples were walking back home, perhaps, to the town of Emmaus, and Jesus appeared to them on the road. And they questioned him about the events that had happened in Jerusalem, and he pretended like he didn't know what was going on. And then it says that he revealed himself, and it says in Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, being Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. The scriptures have been began and finished with the revelation of Jesus Christ as the last book. Amen? The Bible, Old Testament, makes us aware that somebody is coming. Somebody is on the horizon. Somebody is going to be revealed. All of the prophecies, all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were mere shadows pointing to this man. Amen? Not other men, not other religions or other religious leaders, but this man, this God-man. They were pointing to him and to him alone. Now, we needed someone to solve all of our problems. And Jesus came and fulfilled all of those Old Testament predictions, all of those Old Testament prophecies. I wanted to find an illustration to help express that to you. And I found one about World War II and the French underground were, had spies and people that could send information through enemy territory because the war was happening in France. And one way that they could validate each other was like this. They would tear a piece of paper, however they would tear it. They would mail one half of that paper to one of the spies, and they would hand the other half of the paper to the other spy. And in that process, when these two spies or these co correspondents came together... How did they know they could trust the person that they were speaking to? They would take that piece of paper and they would hold it up to each other. And they knew 
that they were speaking to a trusted individual that they could share the information with. What did Jesus do in the predictions of him, in the prophecies of him? He came and fulfilled all of those. He validated himself alone without anything else that he did, that he was the man that was to come and solve our problem, to heal us, to fix us, to change us. We close the Old Testament without him appearing. We read those last words in the Old Testament in Malachi. We read about a forerunner who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. But Jesus was not there in the Old Testament. How does the New Testament begin? It begins like this. Angels descend and tell shepherds, I have good news of great joy for you. This night in the city of David, one, a child is born. Amen. So the Old Testament closed without him. The New Testament opens up with the announcement of his arrival. What a great lesson for us to understand and learn. The Old Testament pointed to Jesus. The New Testament revealed Jesus to us. He alone is this person. He was predicted long before he came. The second point I want you to see is this. Jesus combined within himself the nature of God and the nature of man. No one else has ever done that. No one else ever will. He is a unique individual in all of the universe that he created, by the way. There is none like him, and there, nor will there ever be one like him. The Bible tells us in verse 3 and 4 in our text, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now think about that a minute. We have the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the Bible. We have it from Adam all the way to Jesus. Now, because of his heritage, because of his bloodline, he came, from the, uh, he came from the tribe of Judah, which was David's tribe. And David was promised that a man would sit on his throne. Think about this. In all of the opposition that Jesus faced with the Pharisees, not one time were they ever contradicting his right to sit on the throne. Do you know that? The Pharisees tried every way to dismiss him and get rid of him, but not one time do you ever read that they contradicted his right to sit on the throne. Why? Because it was his. He was a son of David. He was the king. And no one contradicted that because they could not contradict that. He had the right to be there. Now, verse 4 tells us that he was declared the son of God by power. That word declared uh, can be translated as well as he was designated. When you go to the Greek and you look up the word designated, you get the word herozo, which is our word or a root of our word horizon. From horizon to horizon, Jesus is declared the Son of God. Amen. Nobody can miss that. Nobody can take that away from him. Now, we, that people want to take it away. People want to dismiss it. But you and I know that that cannot be removed from him. He is the Son of God. He was declared the Son of David, the Son of Man, and he was declared the Son of God. How? He was declared with power. 
No one else has ever done or can do what Jesus Christ has done. Man cannot live on God's level. All right? All other religions, we try to attain some kind of godly life. All of them are reaching up to God. Muhammad reaching up to God. You do this and you can reach to God. Buddha, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, all of them reaching up to God. Man cannot live on God's level. You got it? So what happens? God came to our level. God the Father came to our level in the form of Jesus Christ. Therefore, God came to live in our world. Jesus, the Bible says, laid aside His deity. He laid it aside briefly, momentarily, temporarily, so that He could come and live among us. Why? Because man cannot live in the presence of a holy God. So Jesus laid aside that deity, that godliness, so to speak, and came and lived as a man for us. Now get this, Jesus did not come to act like God. Hear me? Jesus did not come here to act like God. Jesus came here to act like a man possessed by God. The Bible says that God was in Christ, redeeming the world to Himself. Jesus didn't come down here and point fingers at us and try to act all holy before us. Jesus came down here to be a man with us who was possessed by God. That is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He combined the nature of God and the nature of man into one body. The only one who has and the only one who ever will. Jesus came to act as a man filled with God. Which reminds me, if you're trying to act like God, you better give it up, brother. Because you'll never make it. What you need to do is act like a man possessed by God. You need to act as a man who is filled with the Spirit of God. That's what God wants you to do. You can't act like Him. You won't be successful at acting like God. Thinking like Him, doing like Him, or being like Him. But what you can do is be a man who allows God to possess you and to fill you, just as the example that Jesus Christ gave us today. That's the heart of the gospel. Amen? A changed life to become a man filled with God. Now, three things that Jesus did to declare His deity. Let's look in verse 4. Who was declared the Son of God with power. Now, Jesus came and He performed miracles upon miracles upon miracles. And you know what? The people still would not believe in Him. But that was the power that He possessed to declare who He was. He declared himself as the Son of God by the miracles that he performed. He was a man possessed by God performing those miracles. The second thing I want you to see in verse 4, he was declared deity by the spirit of holiness. Holiness. Holiness, holiness, holiness. You know, it's almost where you and I as Christians, we don't like that word. We don't like the word holy because uh, it it makes us uncomfortable because we know we're not. 
And don't you hate it when somebody calls you holier than thou? We don't like that word. It's a good word, but it means bad things to us in a way. Unless you grasp it or you are able to define it properly. Now there's another word which sounds similar, but it is written differently. And that would be wholeness. W-H-O-L-E-ness. Think of it, holiness, like that. Jesus came and lived a holy life. A separate life. But it was a whole life. It was the life that God intended for every one of you to live. A whole life. If you can think of holiness in that way, to live a wholesome life. Jesus demonstrated that wholesome life. And he demonstrated it as what God intended for his people to live and to be. We are called to live out that whole life. Amen? We are called to be holy people, set apart, separate from the world. We should look different. We should talk differently. We don't want to mingle in with the world. We want to be separate from the world. But at the same time, we want to reach the world. You know, I told you I got frustrated with False Creek because I went down there the last time I went and it had become so much like the world that I got frustrated with the place. Why? Because I think that kids from the world need to go to a place that's different. Not like they are at home. Not doing what they do at home. They need to go to a place that is holy, different. It will change them. Some kids won't be affected, but more kids were affected when they would go to a place that was safe, that was different, and they could hear about a holy God. Do you understand that? God wants you to be holy. He wants you to be different and separate, but at the same time, you have to mix with the people. You have to reach the people. You have to talk to the people. You have to share your testimonial with the people. Amen? That's what He wants us to be. So God's goal for us is to be unlike this fallen world. We can be wholesome and walk through it with the tragedies, with the troubles, with the problems, with the trials. But I make it through those Because God possesses me, and I am different, and I am living a wholesome, holy life. That is what Jesus did in proving his deity. The third thing I want you to see, he proved his deity by the resurrection from the dead. There again in verse 4, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. But he was raised from the dead. You know, if you think about that, that is ultimately where yours and mine's faith rest. Okay? Don't let your faith rest in church. Don't let your faith rest in your spouse. Let your faith rest in the fact that Jesus Christ was dead, but now he is alive. 
Therefore, as God raised Jesus from the dead, likewise he will also raise us. That's our hope. That's where our faith is. Our faith is in a person, Jesus Christ, but my faith rests upon the resurrection of the dead. Amen? That gives me a hope of the future, as Peter wrote in his letter. A hope of the future because of the resurrection of the dead. Now, think about that. That resurrection gives me confidence to believe what God says. Do I want to agree with everything God says? Not always. I've learned to surrender to that, yes. As a young Christian, I might want to debate God. Or I might want to think, hey, I've got an idea, God. Why don't you do it like this? But as I matured as a man and a Christian, I began to accept God as God. A sovereign God. Who makes sovereign choices and sovereign decisions in this world. And so as I accepted Him and I began to learn about that, it gave me confidence to believe in His Word. Not just His written Word, but the words He would share with me in prayer or direction of my life. And so I took confidence in what God was saying because of the resurrection of the dead. He proved it right there. Let me tell you something, or let me uh, give you some ammo. The next time somebody confronts you uh, about your faith or, or about uh, Christianity or the gospel, here's what I want you to think about and try. Have them explain the resurrection. Just say to them, okay, you're going to bash me for my faith in Jesus Christ. Tell me, what do you say about the resurrection? Be the first response, and then they'll start thinking of things that we've already read in the Bible, how they tried to explain it away. But you know what? You can't. You can't explain that away. Don't you think that if the guys got him out, that we would have some bones somewhere? Don't you think they'd be in a museum to put down Christianity? Here's the bones of Jesus. But we don't have any bones. Why? There aren't any. Amen? Have them explain the resurrection. Have them explain it away. They can't do it. It is a fact of history. It has been proven over and over and over again. Somebody wants to bash you for your faith, you challenge them with the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. And see where they go and see what they can come up with. They will be dumbfounded. So, what do we do? Well, we've talked about the Lord Jesus and how He proved Himself. And who he is, he's the bullseye, he's the center, he's all things to us. But now let's talk about you and me. All right, look in verse 6 again. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Now that word called there in verse 6 is not a verb it's not an action word, it is an adjective. It is describing somebody. Called. You have been called. Now you may have thought you were looking for God and seeking God when you found Him. You may have come to church today thinking, I'm going to go to Aaron Springs Baptist Church and I'm going to find God because I'm looking for Him. 
I'm sorry to misinform you or to inform you of this, that God is the one doing the seeking. You came today because he brought you here. You came today because he put it in you to come here. You came today because he is seeking you, not you seeking him. The Bible says in Romans 3, we'll get to that one day, that nobody is seeking after God. All of us have turned away from him. We've all become unprofitable, but God is seeking us. And so he seeks us by calling us. He extends that hand, just like that picture on the screen has that hand extended to you. He's calling you. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to follow him. There are no self-made Christians. There are no man-made Christians. There are only God-made Christians. And God calls mankind to be saved. Now, he called me in a different way than he called you. In fact, he called me differently than any of you in this room. What do you mean, Brother Clay? I mean this, my testimony, my story, where I was, what I was doing, who I was. And God came into my life. He called me and I answered that call. My testimony is different than anyone in this room. And your testimony is different than anyone else in this room. Amen. Sometimes we want to attribute a powerful testimony to a person who is down and out and destitute near death. And God reaches down and saves them and brings them to life. Hey, that, that, that is a wonderful testimony. But you know what? One of the greatest testimonies I ever heard was of a lady who grew up in church. And in her teenage years, she realized that she was lost and undone. She was a great person, but she gave her heart to Jesus Christ. And her life changed and she began to serve in the church and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. To me, that's the greatest testimony Hey, it's, it's great for somebody who's way out there in left field to come to the Lord. But for me, it's greater for somebody to be right under his nose and to realize they need him still and to be saved by him as his grace extends to anyone who is willing to answer that call. Come, come, come. Jesus is calling us. So I want to ask you this morning, do you trust him? Do you know him? Have you answered that call yourself? Look what Jesus said in John chapter 6 on the screen. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Is that you? Is that you? Paul wrote this book so that we could know Jesus Christ as Lord. There's nothing more important in your life than that. Nothing more valuable, nothing worth chasing after 
above that? Have you answered that call? You say, Brother Clay, I, I was saved when I was a kid and I went through the motions. But I don't know if I really answered that call. Then you need to make sure. Don't assume that you're going to heaven. Know that you're going to heaven. You can know that. Understand. John also wrote, These things I have written to you that you may know you have eternal life. I pray today that you would make that decision solid in your life before you leave this room. There is no shame in coming down here and saying, Brother Clay, I'm not sure. The shame is staying in your seat, not being sure, and going to your death, not being sure, and standing before Christ, not being sure. That's where the shame is. Come today, surrender your heart to Him, answer that call. Paul wrote this letter, signed, sealed, delivered from the heart of God to you. Come tonight, we'll finish the introduction, and we'll learn about ourselves even more. Let's pray. Lois will come and play. We'll stand together in just a moment. You come to this altar, do what you need to do. I'll be here waiting for you if you need to talk to me. I want you to be sure, okay? No doubts, no fears. Be sure. Father, we come this morning and we ask you to use your Holy Spirit in this place and reaffirm the salvation of your people here. And then, Father, to convict the hearts of those who aren't saved, who aren't sure, who don't know. Father, I pray that your will is done in this moment, in this place. Lord, thank you for Alfonso coming and, and sharing this morning about missions and the importance that is in Mexico. Father, that importance is even in this room right now and even in this community of Aaron Springs. Father, I pray your will is done and you save people, Lord. Forgive us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.